Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to an author and commentator who has been writing for decades. He's written over 30 books, and those books have had a profound impact on the American political conversation. Oz Guinness is an author and a social critic, and yes, if you're hearing that name, he is in fact the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the famous Dublin brewer. He was born in China during the Second World War, where his parents were actually medical missionaries. He ended up being a witness, although an unwilling witness, to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, when Mao Zedong introduced communism into China with his massive takeover there, and he was expelled with many other foreigners in 1951. He returned to Europe, where he was educated in England, completing his undergrad degree at the University of London and his D of Philosophy in the Social Sciences, his doctorate, pardon me, in the Social Sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. Oz Guinness has written or edited, as I mentioned, more than 30 books, including The Call, Time for Truth, Unspeakable, A Free People's Suicide, The Global Public Square, and his latest book is The Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat, which was published last year. And uh, Oz and I will be talking about that quite a bit in our upcoming conversation. Since moving to the United States in 1984, Oz has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and the East-West Institute in New York. He was a lead drafter of the Williamsburg Williamsburg Charter in 1988, a celebration of the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution, and later of the Global Charter of Conscience, which was published at the European Union Parliament in 2012. Oz has spoken at many of the world's major con- uh, major universities and spoken widely to political and business conferences across the world, and he currently lives uh, with his wife Jenny in wa- the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I reached him for this conversation. My first question is on your one of your latest books, uh, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. And I think the, the obvious question and the question I'm very curious about is uh, the subtitle. When you say America's genius for freedom has become its greatest threat, what did you mean by that? Well, if you look at the notion of freedom, we really have three traditions in the English-speaking world. You have what used to be called the ancient liberties of the English, which is summarized by uh, Magna Carta and all that surrounds that. Then you have ideas that come from the Reformation and to the founding of America, particularly the notion of covenant. And then you have ideas that come from the French Revolution. And what you see in America today is that America shifting from its own revolution to the ideas of the French Revolution, and they're actually undermining freedom. And it's just one more illustration of the fact that freedom is its own greatest enemy. And when you look at how freedom uh, begins to eat itself, what would you say is the most 
obvious manifestation uh, today of the fact that freedom uh, fully unfettered, which the America's founders believed that freedom fully unfettered could destroy America and would destroy America. To your mind, what is the most obvious and indicative example of this? Well, you know, I was at Oxford with the great Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin, and he was the one who stressed that freedom is negative and positive. In other words, it's freedom from so anyone under a bully or addicted to drugs or under a colonial oppressor is simply not free. You've got to start with negative freedom. But full freedom is not just negative freedom, freedom from. It's positive freedom, freedom for, freedom to be. And for that, you need truth, you need character, and you need a way of life. And you can see today in America and in much of the Western world, freedom is purely negative. Get the government off my back, whether it's my bank balance, the conservatives say, or my body, the liberals say, then I'm free. And that's actually a Rousseau-type freedom that goes back to Rousseau's idea. In the state of nature, we're all good people. You remove the odd repression here and there and we'll be happy, free, and fulfilled. And that's absolute nonsense. And you can see in America how that sort of view of freedom is just leading to chaos. Biblical freedom is quite different. There's a framework, truth, character, and a way of life. And that's one of the distinctives, say, the Exodus view of freedom. So when you say that the American Revolution is being abandoned in favor of the French Revolution, for for uninitiated listeners, how would you explain that in layman's terms? Well, the revolutions have two very different sources. The French Revolution, the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, decisively the biblical roots. But then again, they have very different views of humanity. The American Revolution, coming out of the Reformation, has the notion of checks and balances, separation of powers. Why? Because humans are, realistically, sinful. They go wrong. Whereas the French Revolution is, as I said earlier, utopian. Man is born free everywhere in chains. You remove the chains, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. And you can see that in the sexual revolution with Wilhelm Reich. All you need to do is remove any repression you find anywhere, and then we'll be wonderfully free. So they have extremely different views of human nature. But then you could go on down the line and say, how do they address wrongs, for example? The uh, American Revolution, you have to address wrongs through naming them as wrong and then through reconciliation, take the way that Lincoln addressed slavery. Whereas in the French Revolution, it's built on retaliation and revenge and current notions like reparations. In other words, the two revolutions lead in entirely different directions, and the French Revolution is disastrous for freedom, as it was. And what's sort of interesting is, is, is for several books in a row now, you've talked about uh, how uh, how desperate the times are in regards to how much time America really has to turn this around. You addressed uh, this idea on a lesser extent in your book, Renaissance, but then you really tackled it in a, in a free people's suicide. And now again, in, in Last Call for Liberty. 
And in A Free People's Suicide, you talked about the idea of sustainable freedom. What did you mean by uh, sustainable freedom? And do you think it's still attainable in the American context as the sexual revolution has begun to metastasize? Well, ironic, Jonathan, that I'm English and you're speaking to me from Canada. And here we are both are looking at America. But you remember Augustine's great idea that you can understand a nation through what it loves supremely. And there's no question that what America, the American Republic and Americans love supremely, is freedom. Now, as their framers understood well, there are three challenges to freedom. Winning it, that's the revolution, 1776. Ordering it, giving it a political uh, social framework, that's the Constitution, 1787. But the real challenge is the third one, sustaining it. And that's the challenge, not of decades, but centuries. Now, how do you do that? Well, the American founders didn't have a name for what they tried to do. I call it the golden triangle of freedom. Because again and again and again, they stress freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith of some sort, and faith of any sort requires freedom. And rather like the recycling triangle, it goes round and round. Faith requires virtue, which requires faith. Sorry, freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom, which requires, and so on. And you can see that idea being thrown out today. Each of the legs of the triangle is under assault. And America is going in a very different direction. In other words, if you take issues like political correctness, the rage for socialism, the sexual revolution, tribal politics, all the things rampaging through America now, each one of them goes back not to the American Revolution, but to the French Revolution. And the big difference today, say unlike the 1850s, just before the Civil War, there's no American leader like Lincoln. Lincoln believed in the Declaration, and he addressed what he called the better angels of the American experiment. So President Trump, and I'm not attacking him, but he talks about making America great again, but he never says what made America great in the first place. Right. And it wasn't the economy, and it wasn't the military. And unless they do that in the way that Lincoln did, they'll be even further in trouble. Well, what's what's interesting, you mentioned that I, I'm speaking to you from Canada and, and you're a Brit. I'm always reminded of, of a conversation Ronald Reagan had with someone in Panama uh, when when Panama was being threatened by the communists and, and, and Reagan saying that he felt sorry for the man in his predicament and the man replying, no, I feel sorry for you. And when Reagan asked him why, uh, he said, because when America falls, there will be nowhere left to flee to. And I think that's how a lot of people feel watching the American experiment uh, from the rest of uh, of what's traditionally known as the West. And what's interesting is this contrast you have with the United States that on one hand, uh, the sexual revolution was 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 exported from the United States. Uh, some of their biggest cultural exports are Hollywood, are you know trashy music, or you know, internet pornography, which w- was was mainstreamed by America. And then on the other hand, America has the world's most robust and largest pro life movement. They have social conservatives that are genuinely willing to fight on the most important issues. So you have this really strange schizophrenia going on that most people in the West don't understand. 
And like, how would you characterize America's influence on the rest of the West and the significance of whether or not the American experiment succeeds to other countries like Canada, like Great Britain? Well, you've described it extremely well. The way I put it is, if you remember I mentioned the three traditions of freedom, the ancient liberties of the English. Well, they are virtually out of fashion completely now. Here in America, they're called white privilege and dismissed as something peculiar to England, I mean, New England in the 17th century. Right. Well, then you have the Hebrew Reformation, which was very, very powerful. That's what's at stake today with no one defending it, no Lincoln-like voice defending it. So what that means is the third tradition, which comes from the French Revolution, and of course you have a soft version, which you have in progressive, secular, left liberalism today, and then you had a, have a hard version, which is really the rise of Marxism. Uh, we can see this in China. So the chaos of the uh, French Revolution is playing itself out in America, and the control of the hard revolution playing it out potentially against the core protesters in Hong Kong from China. In other words, it is the French Revolution and its heirs that are threatening to prevail worldwide. Now, that will be disastrous for freedom, and that's why it's so important that Americans realize who they are and don't throw away their heritage. I often say to people, and more specifically Christians, and if you think of the book of Galatians, Paul letters to the Galatians, which was so important in the Reformation, Paul says in essence, who's bewitched you? Why are you turning to another gospel? And I find myself saying to Americans, who's bewitched you? Who's turned you from your revolution to another revolution, but you don't realize it? What's very interesting uh, looking at the United States and their social conservative movement is the fact that uh, Protestants— um, of which I am one, didn't they weren't fully involved in the pro-life movement until the early 80s. And one of the people that's really credited with helping to explain why the pro-life position was so important and to bring uh, evangelicals to political engagement on some of these issues is Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, of, co- of course, was your your mentor and your close friend. And now that, I, now that I'm talking to you, I, I kind of wanted... To, to ask you what your, your memories of that period were and, and what you think about the, the entry of evangelicals into politics. Of course, the, the role of, of evangelicals and Christians in politics has been discussed virtually nonstop since 2016. Uh, the Washington Post uh, j- earlier this, uh, this month or earlier this summer, I should say, published a, a massive piece analyzing the role of evangelicals in politics. And interestingly enough, Francis Schaeffer's name has has repeatedly uh, surfaced in these long think pieces that are attempting profundity. So I guess I wanted to uh, hear your analysis of this as somebody who knew Francis Schaeffer personally. Well, Francis Schaeffer was the great door opener for evangelicals. You know, I came to Christ, uh, to faith, in 1960. And it was still true in then, you know, growing up in England, I was at London University. So we had rich, deep blocks of theology, and we had teachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, and people like that, but they had almost next to no understanding of the culture. And so Schaeffer, whose argument was you can think about anything and everything, 
from a Christian viewpoint, and we should be engaging with the culture at every point. He was adorable to many young evangelicals, giving them freedom. And as you said, one of his passionate concerns was to be pro-life. So we owe him a lot. Now, I, I would say there was a moment in which he tended to get entangled with what grew up as the religious right, and that was unfortunate. And towards the end of his life, when he was suffering from cancer, and he was opposed by many in the evangelical community, there was a, a certain darkness in what he was saying that I personally didn't agree with. But I owe him so much. He took the Lord passionately seriously, people passionately seriously, and truth passionately seriously. And those three things were absolutely magnificent to many of us who owe so much to him. What do you think the uh, the role of evangelicals in, in politics has looked like from then until now? You spend a lot of time a- analyzing American politics uh, from the macro perspective and from a broad cultural perspective. But o- on the ground level, when it comes to Christians and their interactions with politics, what is your analysis of, of how things are going a- at the moment and their role in politics, whether that role will sort of subside? Uh, wh- what is your view of what is what is currently unfolding, especially as somebody who has a very good perception of where things were and how it got here? Well, think first of politics. As I see it, whether you're for or against Trump, he has stopped America in its tracks. So it's kind of like a giant wrecking ball, stopped America in its tracks and giving the country a chance to rethink. Do they want to go the progressive, secular left direction? Or do they want to rethink and go back to their roots? Now, he's not the answer, but I don't think he's the problem either. In other words, Trump is the consequence of the crisis, right. not the cause. Now, the trouble is Americans are not taking the Trump pause, as it were, as a chance to rethink. That's their tragedy. Now, in this, now shift to evangelicals and to Christians. Evangelicals are missing their moment because there's a huge confusion. The tragedy of the American church, the scandal, I often say to them, this is the one country in the Western world, they compared with Canada, where you are, or England, where I am, evangelicals and Christians at large are a huge majority. And yet they have less cultural influence than tiny groups who are insignificant numerically. Take, say, the Jews, who are wonderful, are less than 2% of America, and LGBT activists and so on, less than 3% of America, but they have far, far greater influence than Christians who are a huge majority. In other words, the problem is us. And you can see many evangelicals are just giving up on what it is to be evangelical, and you have the rise of post-evangelicalism and ex-evangelicalism and almost weekly defections from the faith of people who clearly show they never understood it in the first place. So there's a rot within the Christian and certainly the evangelical community. When you uh, when you chose the title Last Call for Liberty, it, it sort of struck me because, of course, one's mind immediately goes to the famous Benjamin Franklin uh, quote, which also served as as the title for one of Eric Metaxas's recent books, uh, A Republic If You Can Keep It. Um, when you're sort of looking at, at at how things are unfolding, because you've written a lot about uh, not only cultural transformation, but cultural construction, how you rebuild what we've lost. And uh, there was some recent polling data that came out that I, I, I found uh, 
not only terrifying, but adds credence to, to, to your point that, that Trump has given America a pause, that uh, Trump is a reprieve, uh, not, not, not sort of a, a, a signal that we've turned some sort of corner and that, and that Republicans or conservatives are the new norm. Because there's nothing normal about what's going on right now. I think that everybody agrees on, on that. But when you're sort of looking at what's unfolding, these these statistics are are very terrifying because they indicate that under under the age of thirty, religion uh, is is uh, is of almost no importance uh, to any significant percentage of the population. We're starting to approach Western European numbers, and, and the same thing actually goes goes for patriotism, the love of the United States, the love of the American uh, experiment, if you will. Very few people see any value in that. And there's multiple theories out there for for why this is taking place. But what it looks like is is that we're going through this brief reprieve before we actually end up turning that progressive corner. And there's going to be legions of angry young people who have grown up in the rubble of the sexual revolution in these broken families at their backs. How do you see things going forward? Do you see do you think those numbers might be wrong? Do you have any hope that that young people might embrace the right answers or do you think that we are we're entering in a into a very dark time and that this is sort of last call for liberty? Well, you know, Americans tend to be obsessed with statistics and I read that Wall Street Journal article too and they were very profound and very troubling. But the real challenge is the interpretation and the meaning. And what they show is not just the snapshot of the younger generation, but the fact that transmission has completely broken down. Right. You know, you look at covenantal politics, which is what constitutional politics in America is. It requires transmission. You know, the Jews say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? He didn't talk about freedom. He didn't talk about the promised land. He didn't talk about the howling wilderness they'd have to cross. He talked about children. And the stress in the Torah is on passing from parents to children and teachers to students. In other words, in a free society, that requires civic education. It requires a remembrance of celebration of history. And those two things are completely gone. Americans threw out civic education at the end of the 60s. And there's no decent history in America now. Everything is the current moment. And, and, and you can see the complete folly of this, because faith and freedom both depend on passing it on. And it's not being done. You, you quoted Reagan earlier. Reagan was famous for saying that freedom is always one generation away from being lost. And that's what's about to happen in America. It's never too late. You know, in the Bible, when you had the breakdown of the covenantal community, you had leaders like Ezra, Hezekiah, Josiah, who called for a national renewal and rededication. And I say to people here in Washington, better than Trump's military parade would be a grand national rededication on the Mall that understood what the covenant constitution was and rededicating Americans to its principles once again. It's not impossible. It looks unlikely because there's no sense of history, and sadly there's no real leadership. Do you think it's true? People often say that America is more divided now than it ever has been. And on one hand, I, I understand where that's coming from. On the other hand, somebody like myself, who was who was born in the late '80s, looks back at you know the Kent State shooting, looks at 
you know, thousands and thousands of people marching on the Pentagon and attempting to levitate it, looks at, you know, uh, riots happening across the American South, looks at a, a, a long succession of major political figures getting assassinated from Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, uh, the president, uh, John F. Kennedy, and says, is it true that we've we've never been more divided or is this just, you know, the 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 like half century scheduled spasm uh, that we're currently going through as we try to work out uh, the next step for the American experiment. But you, you lived through and witnessed a lot of, a lot of what I just described. Do you think that America is more divided now than it was back then? I do. And let me tell you why. In other words, it's more divided than at any time just before the civil war. That's the comparison. But why is it more divided in the late 60s. I first came to this country in 68. As you said, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, both assassinated. And you had a hundred cities on fire. And you had the so-called police riots at the Chicago Convention. But what the radicals concluded is despite all that, they were losing. And it was at that time that Rudy Deutschke and others following the Frankfurt School, called for what they called the long march through the institutions, an idea that goes back to Gramsci and Mao Zedong, of course. In other words, you can't do it on the streets. You've got to win the colleges and universities. You've got to win the press and the media. And you've got to win entertainment and Hollywood. Now, they said that in 67, 68, the long march. Fifty years later, which is where we are now, They've won. Those spheres, mainly of ideas, are captured by the progressive left. And that's where the deep division of America really comes. So we're not seeing assassinations, thank God. There aren't 100 cities on fire, thank God. But actually the deep division between the American Revolution and the ideas of the French Revolution are far deeper than before, and the stakes are higher and we're nearer disaster than before. What in your mind does disaster look like? Because this seems to be one of the great debates. Like a lot of people talk about the fall of the West, right? This is like, this has been the title of many different books. It's quite frequently discussed, but there doesn't seem to be any real agreement on what, on what, after we've made that diagnosis, the solution or just the inevitable end result looks like. So you have, you have thinkers like Rod Dreher, who are advocating for the Benedict option, so a strategic withdrawal without explaining exactly how uh, how withdrawal works when people are attempting to restrict your religious freedom and interfere with the education of your children. Um, it, like He doesn't explain how how we can be left alone when people don't plan to leave us alone, I guess would be the, the simple way to put it. And, and then you have other people who, who uh, respond rather snarkily to him by saying my preference would be the Wilberforce option, which would be, of course, uh, you know, a, a, the reformation of manners. So when you look at this, I guess uh, this is a two-part question. First of all, what do you think that will look like? And then second of all, what do you think the best Christian response to this is? question to answer in a sentence or two. (laughs) Take all the time you need. You know, we we need to first analyze what we mean by the decline and eclipse of the West. And that has to include ideas and beliefs and convictions, such as, say, human dignity. 
So with the removal, we're a cut flower civilization, remove the biblical roots, we're now moving from a post-truth world, as Nietzsche and the economist said, to a post-rights world. And so that's very, very important to the decline of the West. We have no grounding for human dignity. But pick up what you were saying about Rod and so on. I personally don't believe in the Benedict option. Uh, when you say Wilberforce and the Reformation of Manners, Manners, of course, for him, was moral standards. It's right. the old word for moral standards, far more profound than what people think of as manners and picking up your keys with your knife and fork and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, how does the Christian faith really shape a culture? That's what we've got to explore. But at the end of the day, it's the way we live in every area. So I disagree with Rod. The key word is not the Benedict option. It's engagement. We have to be salt and light and to engage at every point we can, living differently, speaking differently, acting differently, and so on. And that's how the Christian faith really engages culture. Now, we've each got to do it in terms of our calling. It was a terrible mistake 20 years ago. People started talking about strategic callings as if we knew which ones mattered most. And that's quite wrong. God has gifted us all differently. He's the one who deploys us. And we've got to be faithful in the callings we have, whether we're homemakers, school teachers, scientists, politicians, astronauts, whatever. But it's as the people of God engage with the whole of the culture through their calling, if we're doing it faithfully, we will start to have an impact. Now, we've got to think of all the areas that we need to, but that's a very broad statement. So to go back to your last call for liberty concept, there there's a lot of discussion right now about uh, the persecution or the potential for persecution of Christians in the West. And, of course, they're referring to people like Jack Phillips of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, they're talking about people getting bullied by LGBT activists who have explicitly stated that their goal is to punish those who have opposed them in the past. And, of course, that word is, I think, thrown around too carelessly when you consider what Christians are dealing with in China at the moment, in North Korea for decades, and, and places around the world where Christians are facing genuine lethal persecution. And and here in the West, we've just shifted from cultural hegemony to something uh, substantially lesser than that. What, in your diagnosis, would Christian or could Christian persecution in the West look like in the coming decades? Well, we've got to face the fact that animosity towards religion in general, and the Christian faith in particular, is at the heart of the French Revolution. And you can see in something, say, Wilhelm Reich, the architect of the word sexual revolution in the 1920s, he says they will never win until they conquer parents, sex education at three and four, and the church. So we need to expect it. And there's no question that the secular left has us in their sight. But I would say, secondly, we, we mustn't exaggerate it, and we must never play the victim. The Jews are terrific here because they're the most victimized people in history, and yet they know that to portray yourself as a victim eventually means you come to perceive yourself as a victim, and then in the end you paralyze yourself as a victim. So. Christians who said we must play the victim card and talk about Christophobia, stuff like that, are absolutely stupid. Jesus told us to expect it. 
counted all joy. And so we've got to have a robust view of persecution. Please, God, we don't have to face it. But if we do, we must face it with courage and with faithfulness. One of the things I wanted to ask you, in in addition to the the questions we've just been going through uh, um, that are focused on in your books and your commentary, is you've actually had the chance to, to witness a lot of history for yourself. And one of the things that's interesting and very current in the news right now, of course, is the face-off between between China and Hong Kong. China looms large in almost all discussions now. And I noticed uh, in just reading your, your bio that you were actually a witness uh, to the end of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. And I was hoping you'd, you'd, you'd give us a few of your memories ab- about that. What was, what was that like, witnessing that history unfold in real time? Well, I well remember the day in January '59 when I was seven. My dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just learned In other words, he left Nanjing, and it was at the mercy of the looming army of Lin Bao and the, and the Red Army. And that's what, of course, happened. Now, before that, I was sort of bugged as a small boy. as salmon got longer and longer and longer and longer. And my dad said to me, well, what's happening is they're laying down all the teaching and enjoying all the fellowship they possibly can start. So before the, uh, you just, you just cut, you, began, you just cut out there for a moment. You said before the what starts? Persecution. Persecution. Okay. So I was there as the reign of terror began and the persecution began. And my dad was in touch with people all the way through. Of course, we know the result of the church exponentially. But the significance is that the Chinese, of course, have no place for human rights. And they are the symbol of totalitarian authoritarian power today. You know Niebuhr's idea, Reinhold Niebuhr, that the bookends of history are anarchy, freedom without any order, and um, authoritarianism, which is order without any freedom. And you can see America today is increasingly representing anarchy, and China sadly represents authoritarianism. So as we watch the protesters in Hong Kong, that's the significance. Is the freedom going to be squelched again, or become chaotic as it did in the color revolutions and so on, or squelched as it was in Tiananmen Square? Or well, it's over this time. Anyway, the stakes for freedom are high, both in the chaos in America and in this battle on the streets of Hong Kong. And you actually, uh, you and your family had to flee from which city was it? Shanghai. Well, yes, we had to flee. Uh, that was far worse. Um, in Nanjing, my parents were able to entrust me to a friend who was passing through, who was able to take me to Hong Kong, and I went back to. England, where I went to school and so on. My parents were under house arrest for a further. I was with them under arrest for two years, and then they were under further house arrest for another two years. So they were some of the last Westerners kept captive in China. But actually, looking back, they said themselves they were not in danger. In the 30s, when the communists arrested a Christian or Westerner, often executed immediately. But in, in the 50s, the eyes of the world were on them, and they wanted to show the world as a new communist government, 
so they were behaving better than people feared. So they were, my parents were not actually in danger at the end, although they were under arrest and they were glad to get out. When you look back, I guess uh, one of the final questions I wanted to ask is is you've you've now been writing for decades and decades on these issues. You've had the chance to well you've you met Winston Churchill personally. Uh you witnessed the 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 last stages of of, of the Chinese revolution in Red China and and then you've been writing commentary on ongoing events for for years. Which historical events that you witnessed do you think have most profoundly changed the way you see things, even if it didn't change your analysis or your thoughts, changed the way you saw things? Well, revolution was extraordinary. I was far too young to appreciate it at the time. Uh, Perhaps because of where I'm living now and the conversation we've had today and the fact that I first came to the United States in my 20s, which for anyone, the most extraordinary de- decade in which blossom and flourish and, and the world was fresh, excited eyes, the 60s and its impact and what's happened since then has been the revolution that I've most been concerned with. And I think it's one that is playing out now. Uh, InterVarsity Press have kindly asked me to they they kindly wanted to republish my first book to death, I think, this year. I thought, goodness, that's ancient history. Right. But actually, the seeds sown in the 60s, many of which we didn't see at the time, I I saw much of the significance, but not the full significance. The 60s are still shaping our world today, and that's why we need to understand them. So I would say the 60s Cultural Revolution has been the most important I've saw and have lived with ever since. Final question would be for for the, those who are who are listening, and especially for, for young people growing up. Uh, young people are, are facing the facts that the world they are going to live in is very different from the one their parents grew up in and is almost unrecognizable in many ways to the one that their grandparents grew up in. What is your advice for young Christians attempting to grapple with these social changes and and, and what should they do to arm themselves for the struggles ahead? Well, start by thinking we are not responsible for the times in which we live. We're born in them. We didn't choose to be. Our parents chose it. The Lord chose it. But we are responsible for our response to the times in which we live. So thinking through our faith, we have to think through what is the shape of the world and what does it mean to be faithful in this particular time? And then how does my particular calling, your particular calling, someone's particular calling, fit into that challenge? So I love the Apostle Paul's wonderful statement about King David in Acts 13, he says, David, after served God's purpose in his generation, fell asleep and died. You know, that's all we're called to do, serve God's purpose in his generation. So we have to know the Lord, we have to know our generation, and just to respond faithfully. So there's no point in lamenting the times. And I grew up chaos and, and death in China. My two brothers died. I often ask, why not me, Lord? And I, I've lived through some extraordinary things. But the challenge is always to figure out where we are in our time 
and what it means to respond with all the faith and obedience and courage that we can, always remembering that God is greater than all. God can be trusted in all situations. Have absolutely no fear. Have faith in God and do all you can. Well, Oz, thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion with us. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with author and social critic Oz Guinness, mainly discussing his most recent book, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation this week. If you're interested in listening to past conversations uh, with guests representing the pro-life and pro-family community from across the spectrum, please head over to lifesitenews.com. Our podcast can be found on Pippa, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and anywhere that you get your podcasts from. Again, thanks so much for joining us, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.